It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age. You shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. Basically, you can't have a hate crime against a group that Yale Law School, Harvard Law School, and the New York Times and NPR don't think is an oppressed minority. And I think that now it is very important to encourage Christians in Finland and everywhere that now it is the time to be open, not to be silent, to be open about your faith. In those kinds of services, we have what are called praise teams. I've often wondered why there aren't lament teams. The Bible is not primarily what I would call an upward-looking book, but it's a forward-looking book. So it's, it's not a book that's so much concerned about the die and go to heaven piece, but it's more concerned. I mean, the thing it's fixated on is the resurrection and the renewal of all things. This is Pastor Michael and Lindsay Schmidt of Natoma, Kansas. And whenever we go on vacation, we always take along issues, etc., to help pass the interstate mile. Issues Etc. Talk radio for the vacationing Lutheran family. More John Langley, please. Throughout this week, we have, along with monitoring things in Milwaukee, where the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod met in its 68th regular convention. We've been bringing you regular updates. Last time we did that was on Wednesday, here on this Friday afternoon, August the 4th. We are going to do the same, get a recap of the 68th regular convention of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Center with Mark Stern. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Friday afternoon, I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. After our conversation with Mark Stern, we'll discuss no-fault divorce with Dr. Scott Yenner, professor of political science at Boise State University. Then we will review two movies, big blockbusters, both of them, that uh, Pastor Ted Geese says are more alike than different. The movies are Barbie and Oppenheimer. Joining us for a recap of the 68th regular convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, Mark Stern, an attorney, a convention delegate, and a member of the Committee for Convention Nominations. Mark, welcome back. Thank you, Pastor Bokin. So we got an update from Tom Halverson on Wednesday. What would you highlight from Thursday and Friday morning? Well, if I had to do a headline, it would be, Delegates Finally Defeat a Resolution. The one and only resolution brought forward by a floor committee that was defeated was Resolution 909, which was to appoint a task force to consider a four-year convention cycle. This is something that has been brought up several times. It's been defeated every time. People thought it'd be a little bit different this time, but it went down once again, and that has the distinction of being the only resolution defeated. 
Other than that one, what would be another highlight for you from the last couple of days? The elections on Thursday morning were the last three boards of regents, including both Concordia, Texas and Concordia University, Wisconsin. And with regard to Concordia, Texas, I think the delegation is very strongly opposed to the actions that have been taken at Texas. And they reelected Pastor Nathaniel Hill, who was one of the dissenting votes and who actually resigned from the board in protest, but has agreed to let his name stand again. They defeated the incumbent commission minister and they elected one of the lay members who had voted against the secession and another solid layman. So that will be very interesting. Another one to watch is Concordia University, Wisconsin. That has sort of gone by a little bit under the radar because of the Texas controversy. But of course, as you remember, President Harrison launched a visitation team for Concordia University, Wisconsin as well to deal with significant concerns regarding doctrine and practice up there. And that remains a work in progress. But based on the results of the election on Thursday, it is believed that there is likely to be a new board chairman up there, and that will hopefully keep them moving in a positive path toward strengthening their connection to Synod and getting rid of some of the practices that Professor Greg Schultz and others have flagged. What can you tell us about Resolution 705 to bring accountability to Concordia University Boards of Regents and to improve doctrinal fidelity and amenability to ecclesiastical supervision? That may be the most important structural resolution passed at the convention because it's immediately effective and it affects the polity of each board of regents. The previous bylaw was that the appointed board members at the institutions had the ability to elect other appointed board members. And in practice, that sort of created the ability to have almost a self-perpetuating board because, of course, the Synod only elects four regents. The district select four regents plus the district president but then there were eight regents who were appointed, and oftentimes you might have a very solid result at the Synod Convention, but the majority would not even come close to changing because of the appointed regents. So this resolution brings the practice at the universities into line with what has always been the case at the seminaries, which is that the appointed members don't get to vote on other appointees, and that shifts the balance of control back toward the Synod. The other thing, and this is so this is a very significant change, and it doesn't require anybody to make a subjective determination. It simply becomes effective. The second thing that 705 does is it gives the Synod Board of Directors a process in which if there is an unfaithful regent, that person can be removed through a successive disciplinary process. Currently, the only way really to remove a regent is to have the board itself act to remove a regent, and that is rarely going to occur. You served formerly as the chairman of the Board of Regents at Concordia University, Chicago. How encouraging do you find these moves by the Synodical Convention? I think they're very positive. I think that a lot of the issues with Texas occurred because there was too much latitude given to the boards, and there needs to be much closer monitoring of what is going on. It's very late in the process with Concordia, Texas. Obviously, I think the Synod is not finished with them. I think based on the convention, there will probably be more actions taken. But the situation got very far down the road. I think the new bylaw changes will help keep the focus on so that issues are not allowed to fester for as long as has happened under the current uh, regime. How confident are you that with those new regents elected by the convention for Concordia University, Texas, 
that they will actually take their place on that board of regents? I am not really confident right now. I think that probably there unfortunately may have to be some sort of legal action one way or the other. Obviously, I can't speculate as to the response from Concordia, Texas. Their president, Dr. Don Christian, was present at the convention. I did not have an opportunity to talk with them, and I doubt they're saying much. But their stance has been that they're not subject to the governance of synod, which would suggest that they would not voluntarily seat those regions. So it remains to be seen. Under our bylaws, new regions take office on September 1st. So that will be a date to watch to see if they are allowed to be seated or if there is some other process that occurs. The convention agreed to fellowship with other Lutheran church bodies. Who were they? The convention added fellowship to five church bodies, and it recognized the breaking of fellowship with one other church body. The new church bodies are the Evangelical Lutheran Church in South Sudan and Sudan, the Evangelical Lutheran Mission Diocese of Finland, the Lutheran Church of Uganda, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Ukraine, and the Ceylon Evangelical Lutheran Church in Sri Lanka. So those are five church bodies that came in through two different bylaws. The president, in some cases, had already declared fellowship subject to approval by the convention, and in one case, the convention itself approved fellowship. So that is an example of how the Missouri Synod continues to expand the worldwide reach and partnership and confessional Lutheranism, not only altar and pulpit fellowship, but also many of the church bodies are working with both seminaries in terms of getting solid confessional theological education for pastors in those areas. So that is very exciting. On the downside, the Synod recognized that the Japan Lutheran Church is no longer an altar and pulpit fellowship with us due to various actions they have taken to ordain women as pastors. Was uh, closed communion also an issue with the Japan Lutheran Church? There were a number of issues, and I would encourage folks to read through the resolution because it gives a very detailed history of the theological issues, which, as you know, do include closed communion, as well as the history of discussions. The Japan Lutheran Church was brought into fellowship in the early 70s at a time when there were a lot of things going on in the Missouri Synod, and they had some influences of scriptural interpretation principles that were not really consistent with what we as Missouri Synod Lutherans believe, and that leads to a lot of different problems. It's not simply the women's ordination issue, but it also involves open communion. It involves other scriptural understandings, because once you make scripture into a malleable text— you create a lot of problems. On the issue of communion, how did the delegates address the recent phenomenon mid- and post-pandemic of online communion, so-called online communion? Sure. Well, I was on Floor Committee 5, which is the Theology and Church Relations Floor Committees, and we passed a very strong resolution, 508. I think it was modified slightly, but basically are rejecting and condemning the practice of so-called online communion. That is a very strong theological statement. It's stronger than a lot of the resolutions that get passed, which you see words like encourage and support and urge. This was very clear, and I think it passed by a very solid margin. I think even in the middle to left part of the Synod, there's very little support for this. There are some that, uh, that do hold to it, but there are not very many, and I think that was a good resolution. There has been some criticism, including from guests and from myself here at Issues, etc., of the new publication of Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications. Did the convention deal with that issue? 
The convention did not deal with that issue. There was a resolution from our floor committee to address release and use of Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. After some discussion among the floor committee, the committee decided not to bring that forward. There was an effort after our committee was dismissed to force the discharge of that resolution onto the floor, and that failed. We as a committee decided basically that what has been written has been written, and having a floor debate over this was not likely to be edifying to the Synod because there is a doctrinal review process. Certainly that can still be maintained. Those that have concerns certainly should continue to use that process. But as it stands, currently there's been no successful challenge to what is contained in that volume. And therefore, it was not deemed necessary to have a further, to take the convention's time to discuss that and uh, reopen wounds regarding that discussion. So as it stands, the book's still out there. It can be purchased, but the convention took no action on it. So finally, what issues do you think face the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod post-convention for the next triennium? The same issues really that we've been facing, which is continuing to figure out how we're going to provide for pastors, for the congregations that need them, and to continue to maintain fidelity and support, especially our laity in a world in which, and this was a controversial word, post-Christian, because, of course, many would say there is no post-Christian world, Christ is always with us, but a world in which Christianity is no longer a baseline or even a touchpoint for many in the secular culture. They don't even understand what we're doing, let alone agree with it. So those are things the Seminaries Floor Committee talked about a number of the issues regarding alternate routes, about the need to have the best possibly trained pastors that we can have through residential formation while recognizing that despite residential formation being the gold standard, there is a place for alternate routes to meet specific and articulated needs of the Synod. And again, the need in our culture to support First Amendment rights, rights of free exercise, and our right to practice our faith despite the attacks from the culture. Mark Stern is an attorney, a convention delegate, and a member of the Committee for Convention Nominations. Mark, on behalf of Issues Etc., thanks for your expertise in canon law and for your faithful service to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Thank you, Pastor Wilkin. Always great talking with you. Folks, if you didn't attend the LCMS convention and visit Ad Crusum's booth, be sure to check out Ad Crusum's Christ-centered, high-quality greeting cards, church banners, jewelry, art certificates, and more at adcrucem.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. On the other side, Dr. Scott Yenner joins us to discuss no-fault divorce. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Lutheran Talk. 
the cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Often imitated, never equaled. You're listening to Issues Etc. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the Word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the Word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. lcms.org stewardship. When pastors talk about us, they say ad crucem. When laity mention us, they say ad crucem. When telemarketers call us, they say ADC Rucam. Better Luther Rose by any name will smell as sweet. Ad Crucem is the place to go for greeting cards and artwork, jewellery and ornaments, housewares, church certificates, church banners and much more. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. <laughs> 